Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're going to talk about theosis and deification. It's like, well, we probably need to get a pretty stark picture of what it is, the situation that we find ourselves in. So that's what's kind of, you know, it's, it becomes annoying. It's like, well, if you if people dismiss you because you're, you know, you have the, the hope of universalism or, or whatever, you know, it's Alex Blakey. It's like, well, no, you, you're you're misunderstanding the dire. You know, I think that this is what we're trying to get at. It's like sort of the dire circumstances that human beings find themselves in the throes of sin and death and what it must mean to be saved from that because of God's love and because of his good intentions. And so in light of what Paul uh, it's the, you know, the dark sort of um, situation that, that Paul is articulating with who we are in respect to our, you know, incapacities, our sort of, you know, voluntary, the evil that we do. John, what would theosis mean? What is theosis or deification? I think, you know, the easiest place to start is just, as uh, it Second Peter chapter 1, where he talks about participating or partaking of the divine nature? In some way... Christian, early Christians especially, but Christians have thought that what it fully means to be human, uh, what it would mean to be saved, or what it means to, you know, the goal of all things, is that we would be like God in every way except his essence, or some people say nature. It depends on uh, whether you're working with Latin or Greek as sort of the root. Uh, it doesn't matter. We're talking about the same thing. That we're going to become like God in every way except we remain creatures, basically. And to say, well, this is what Christianity is truly about is a bit odd for a lot of people who have thought that, well, Christianity must truly be about ethics or Christianity must truly be about, you know, getting out of hell or making sure that uh, I'm not under God's wrath, but I'm under God's uh, grace or something like that, which all those other topics that people have at one time or another thought, oh, this must be the kernel of the truth of Christianity will find some place in Christian theology once you say, well, actually, the point is theosis or deification. You're going good there, John. I was expecting more. You were flying high there, so I would say maybe keep going if you want. I was going to let you lean on. I've actually kind of forgot all your well, I mean, what would it mean to be united to the, to the... I like the contrast you were setting up. In other words, if you're not doing theosis then the tendency is to do a kind of partial salvation from hell, a kind of ethic. And ethics is not left out of theosis. Yeah. Uh, you know, being Christ-like is inclusive. I guess my point against the ethics was that, you know, we could, like liberal Protestantism, imagine that what, it, what Christianity is all about is becoming, you know, culturally sensitive, polite people who will bring about something akin right. to the kingdom god on this world uh well no it's actually it's a cosmic picture uh, right of all things coming under submission of god being properly ordered to god i think in that sense then we could anything you want to talk about within christian theology is able to be related in some way to this idea of theosis and it this is what i love about people like maximus the confessor or say gregory of nyssa or gregory of nonzianzus is their picture of things, it, it, this is you know Athanasius and Irenaeus as well, uh, that the point of Christianity is the incarnation, and in the incarnation, God has become human so that humans can become God. That's a classic refrain throughout the early Christian writers. 
And this idea then is that what human life, human nature, uh, human existence has been recapitulated into the divine person of the Son of God and Jesus Christ. That Jesus, as you know, Western Christians are celebrating today, has ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, uh, in the sense that now there's a place for humanity in uh, the Godhead, so that our human relationships which we might take to be sort of meaningless or temporal, now have eternal significance. This is C.S. Lewis's point at the end of his sermon in The Weight of Glory, that next to uh, Christ and the sacraments on the altar, the next holiest thing that you will ever encounter is Christ in your neighbor. Like, turn and look to those who are around you. That the world, creation, human life, all takes on eternal significance with the notion that theosis is the kernel of Christianity. This is what all this is really about. Yeah, and and for me too, just to add to that, that we've been talking about freedom. And so whatever theosis or deification must mean then would be being set free from sin, right? Yeah, like we are truly free when we become like a God in every way. We become more substantial, less mutable. Mm -hmm. Uh, We become people that aren't, uh, you know, tossed upon the waves yeah. as the psalmist depicts us. You know, we're not tossed to and fro. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't, don't want to deliberate anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, should I sin or shouldn't? I want to set my face towards Jerusalem. I'm like, Jesus, that's where my, that's where the freedom is. It's like, well... Yeah, well, I mean, that's the nasty underbelly of deliberation, right? When we deliberate, what we're assuming is somehow that we can choose a final end for ourselves. I mean, the worst bit about that is, like, the most perverse form of that is imagining that there's a purely natural end to human life. That's all there is. It's materialism. People are just hunks of flesh. And so our deliberation or freedom from all constraint is the best that we can hope to so that we can find the best end for our material beings that we can. And so, you know, you then would use people and abuse people and try to get ahead and everything would be sort of just, uh, you know, the economy would be a finite economy. It's a closed system. And I think in theosis, we're being told, no, that is overwhelmingly not the case. Actually, you know, everything in the natural order, everything that's intelligible in creation has this desire for a supernatural infinite end that we are all opened up to God and we're, we have this eternal life given to us by this created relationship of grace that God has related himself to us in love such that God's grace would open us up, our lives up to the life of uh, the Trinity. Um, that's an amazing thing for sure. It is. And I mean, so to think about what it must mean to be joined to the divine nature, it's like, okay, so not only then will we be saying, well, you're being set free from um, sin in all the ways that we've described it. Paul's described it as a deception. That, In other words, so that we're not just saved in sort of the negative sense of like, oh, you're set free to not do bad stuff anymore. But this whole world of truth and of goodness and of beauty and of being is opened up to us in the positive sense that we can begin to love. We can begin to love God. We can begin to love him with all of our minds. This is what the man Jesus did, right? This is what the divine human Jesus did is that he walked and he contemplated God. He served God. He loved his neighbor. He was totally free from that part of what we deal with in terms of the sin that so easily weighs us down or whatever. And it prevents us from seeing God in all things, right? And so for me, theosis would be something like, well, instead of um, 
you know, looking at creation in, in sort of a consumptive way or objectifying it or whatever. It's that you're able to see the logos that uh, in all things, whether it's uh, human beings, animals, just the world, everywhere you look, you know, that you're set free in that sense in your mind. It's like the Matrix example or whatever, right? It's like you're you're seeing beyond the data that's being presented to you in a sort of a strictly material sense, but you're seeing the the spiritual reality that underlies all things, and that spiritual reality is the goodness and the love of God, the peace of, of what it means to um, exist in God's kingdom. And so not only are we being joined to God in the sense that we're being freed from the things that would hurt us and destroy us, but that we're also being brought up into the divine life in such a way that we're able to commune with God, that we're able to contemplate, you know, with the saints, the glory of God. So for what it, to me, I mean, theosis is something on the order of victory, that it's a participation in the divine victory over all the different powers that uh, would over, you know, overwhelm us, whether they be, you know, spiritual powers, whether they be our sinful uh, nature, flesh, whatever you want to call it, our inability to, to worship God with all of our minds and all of our hearts, our inability to love our neighbor, our inability to love ourselves, right? So once you enter into whatever theosis or deification, what, it, what that means, I think, is to walk as Jesus walked. And does that mean I'm going to walk on water? No. But it might be, though, that I can commune with God and, and really with just existence itself in a way that people who aren't on that journey can't, right? It's like, as Christians, we should be able to see things that other people can't, right? Like, we should be able to understand things about the nature of truth and of goodness and of beauty and of God and about our neighbor and just being itself in much more profound ways that people who aren't in that or sort of further along in that process of theosis, but we should be we should be further along, I guess, in our, our participation in the divine nature. We should be, as John put it one time, we should have more being. You know, this is great. Like what we're trying to describe here. So you got to put it against like the the dark contrast of uh, of sin and death and all these things. But I think that what we're talking about is a glorious thing. And we've also said, too, that this is something that's going to be stretched out for all of eternity, that epicosis. Uh, it's an infinite stretching out of our unity with the divine, you know, the infinite God, the Trinitarian God. So whatever our participation in his life means is a journey that I think we we're, we're undertaking now. It's the, it's the rule over creation, I guess, right? To rule over ourselves, to rule over not like the, you know, the Gentiles do as Jesus does it, but in service, in love to say like, well, instead of my life just being about, you know, making as much money as I can or having as, you know, sex with as many girls as I can or, or getting as high as I can or whatever, it's like, I'm actually going to go serve the sick or see the people in prison. And right, I'm going to begin to be like Christ in the sense that I'm learning how to love. And so to me, that is what theosis or deification must mean at least in part. Paul, is there anything else that you would like to, to add? I'm sure you've got something. I think we may have left out a key element in this discussion, and that is that what we're describing, the difference, you know, of the Calvinistic or Augustinian notion of predestination, and then the shift that we're describing, is also an anthropological shift. That is, that there's almost an, an inherent shift in our understanding of what it means to be human. 
And, of course, what we're getting in the Western understanding that's going to ultimately bloom into an absolute sort of individualism is that when we talk about election, we're talking about the election of particular individuals and the salvation of particular individuals. And, of course, when we recognize that the election is the election of Christ, it's a corporate election of those in Christ. There is simultaneously, then, a redefinition of what it means to be human. That what we are as human beings is what we are corporately. And so you get a bit of this, that we are fallen. You know, that's the the imagery in Scripture, is that we can trace this fallenness because it's a corporate fallenness. That where Adam is in the image of God, Seth and the members of his family are in the image of Seth, so that we all, in a kind of Girardian sense, have the model presented to us that is already a one that has fallen. And so just anthropologically, we are humans in relationship, and the failure of our humanity is a relational failure. And so what we're describing in theosis or in is then not simply an individual, but we're talking corporately in Christ, but also larger than that, it's cosmic in scope, that things are being redeemed. It is a relationship with God and with other people and with creation itself that's being redeemed, that none of those relational aspects can be left out of that. And so, of necessity, this is something that we're all in this together. That apart from the model of Christ and apart from those who imitate Christ, we are enabled to be imitators of God. We're able to be friends of God through this corporate, you know, being incorporated into this new body. So this is, I think, the, the failure of humanity. I mean, it's clearly the failure of Western uh, humanity, is the failure is one of falling into the self. But in a sense, I think that that is always the, the failure, that we fall out of relationship, and maybe we do that corporately. Maybe one group falls out of relationship with another. And so the healing of the nations that's described in Revelation, it is a, a picture of the healing of corporate man. When Paul talks about the unity in the church, he's going to talk about it corporately, that one portion of humanity, the Jews, is brought into unity with the other portion of humanity, the Gentiles. And so we're, we're in this together, and I think that uh, when we recognize this, this inherently gives us an ethics of election. We are participants, then, in this unity in our relationship with other, that's what ethics is all about, how we relate to other people. And so I think, in a sense, theosis captures this, that it's not just one individual or one soul, but it's corporately the world is being remade. And I think that's ultimately what election is about, is this telos that was inherent from the foundation before the foundation of the world.
Yeah, the all of creation, right? The, and, and to be able to see it, to be able to hope for it, to have faith in it, to be able to inhabit as if it's already something that's that's a reality is a is a way to participate in the life of God. That, you know that that they open. I have a question for you, and just sort of in regards to both what Paul and I both said, that maybe you could elaborate. You know, you're a part of you're worshiping with the Eastern Orthodox Church right now, and theosis is often a term because it's Greek, I guess, but, you know, we associate it with the Eastern Orthodox tradition, maybe more so than the Western traditions. If my understanding's correct, then theosis is something that is done either through what is known as the contemplative life or uh, can be done through the active life, but they would talk about theosis in that way, that there's a practice. If you went to a priest and you said, well, how do I how do I be a Christian? Like he would explain to you a process of theosis and may draw upon aspects from both, depending on where you're at in life, both the contemplative life and the active life. How do you think about theosis practically in regards to what we've said so far? Well, you know, there's sort of the level, right, of contemplation and all those different things that you were talking about. I mean, for me, I absolutely think that prayer is something that's helping me to gain victory you know in my own life and i think it is just things like the jesus prayer spending time praying that simple prayer and contemplating god you know you said a thing to me the other day that has really stuck with me john you said that reading is easy prayer is hard <laughs> you know so it's like but that that can be a discipline you know to, to, to read and to think about god but i think the prayer can be a real labor because you you you're, you're entering into whatever it must mean into the divine life and just account encountering God on His own terms, right? So I can't uh, pretend that I have this worked out. This is just something that I'm starting. But I know that for me to be introduced to things like fasting, you know, which of course the Orthodox do, all, you know, a lot. You know, Hart says they do too much. You know, he's just kind of joking around. But it's like it is. It's a lot. You know, it's, it's usually every Wednesday and Friday. So there's a way of sort of ordering, even liturgically, right? That, that I'm, I'm reading um, Father Alexander Schremen's book uh, for the life of the world, and he's, I was just reading where he's talking about what God really wants to give us is His joy. You know that He says that it's the good pleasure of the Father to give you the kingdom. He's ready to share His peace and His uh, His joy for, and for us to be able to be to have the eyes of Christ or whatever, and the ears of Christ, and the words, and all these different things to be conformed into His image. And so. I'm just be going starting down the road with orthodoxy, but the other part that where they, of course, put a huge emphasis is on the Eucharist. That you know, Hart says that participating in the Eucharist is nothing less than the sort of deification of man. You're quite literally taking the body and blood of Christ and you know consuming it, and it's your like you're right. You're being filled with literally for the orthodox the divine life. Which of course I haven't had the opportunity to do yet, you know. But eventually, you know, hopefully we'll it'll I'll complete the process. I think that the living the sort of the liturgical life. So this, these are different. This is a different sort of world that you enter into, right? It's like that. And John, I know that you know as an Episcopal priest, it's like that's something that you and I can always talk about. We have that in common. It's like oh, it's this mm-hmm. you know feast day, or oh, we're commemorating this saint. It's a different way to inhabit the world. It's like we're always remembering these brothers and sisters. Who have come before us or and we're there's these times of fasting or mourning and saying like well you know this is the day that jesus was betrayed by you know judas so we gotta we're gonna take it easy you know and fast to remember that and but we're not going to necessarily do it mournfully but in other words we're ordering our lives by 
what we're trying to explain, I think, in these podcasts is to say that there's this alternative reality. There's the kingdom of God. And there's all these different ways, you know, maybe for Protestants, it's getting there and it's getting your cup of coffee and it's just like reading the Bible. That's great. I love to read the Bible, but that's not the only way to, to, to sort of participate in the divine life, right? We always, we have theological conversations. Jesus says, we're two or three are gathered in my name. I'm there. So I think that in as much as what we've said has been, has been good and true. It's like, well, Jesus is part of what we're doing right now, right? During the, uh, the hours, you know, during the prayer hours, the six, the nine, the 12, the three, the six, you know, these are all ways that I think that we can, at least for the Orthodox, what they want to say is primary is worship. That that's that worship is like the most primary thing that we're doing as human beings. And that whenever we say worship, we're saying love. And so whatever the Trinitarian life is, it's the father loving the son in the spirit, you know, and the son uh, loving the father in the spirit. And that there's this, this mutual adoration that God invites us into that life. Like, well, that's a wonderful thing, right? Like, welcome into uh, the midst of our love where you can share, you can receive our love, you can give love back to us, we can share good things, we can share uh, wisdom and, you know, uh, truth and beauty. There's all this stuff, you know, God wants to show us, but we have to be willing, I think, to, or at least I have to be willing, to do things that maybe are don't come to me as naturally. It's like, well, it's easy for me to read, you know, I like doing that. But it might be harder for me to go, okay, I'm going to put down this book and for, you know, whatever, 10 minutes. Like, I'm going to say the Jesus prayer and then whatever, ha you know, and then nothing like ever happens, right? Except for I usually do at some point get sort of a very profound piece. And, and you know, what's happening there is too that I've noticed is that it's almost like training, right? Like a guy, uh, it was Father Lucas, you know, at the at Holy Trinity was saying that he was talking to the, a guy who used to train Navy SEALs. And the guy was saying, you know, well, what happens is, is that you train before battle. So that whenever you go into battle, it's like, well, you just rely on your training. Like you've been training. And so then whenever the battle presents itself, you've already been doing your push-ups or whatever, right? Like you've already been training for this moment. And so then you just fall back on your training. And what Father Lucas's point was is that, well, that's what's happening when we do contemplative prayer. When we do either contemplative prayer or we just do the, you know, the hours or, or we pray together or we talk or, or we study. It's like, well, we're, we're training for righteousness so that whenever that moment comes to sort of relinquish our relationship with God or even our own humanity because we're going to fall into some sort of deception or sin or whatever, that we've been training. We've been with God. We've been hanging out with Jesus. You know, so like John was saying earlier, we're not going to always get it right. We're still going to do stupid things and lie and lust and uh, be greedy and slothful and all these different things. But I, I do think that for me, the best part of my day is being able to try to incorporate as much as I can God into my thought life, into the things that I do vocationally or, or, or whatever. And I still get it wrong, right? But I will say that I'm further down the road now than I, than I was then. And so I don't know if that was just me blabbering on, you know, but I guess I'm trying to uh, answer the your question yeah, no, it's, and it's good and uh i mean a part of it just as we we're having this conversation it kind of sparked a thought on my own my part that was thinking to the effect that if we only defined theosis as uh, making of everything right basically which is a huge part um we're leaving off like most of what theosis is really about and that's having communion with god like yeah, get your relation. We we a part of this is having right relationships with each other, being reconciled, um, being peaceable. Um, like the ethics are entailed, definitely. 
but what's the point? Like we're saying those things happen and uh, both because of and to the end that we contemplate who God is. We are we, we know and we are fully known. And um, so I think there's got to be that contemplative aspect in a properly ordered Christian life. And you did a great job of talking about that. Well, thanks. And, and, and thank you for your help, too, because I remember whenever I was kind of making this transition, you know, you were the, you know, one of the, the people in my life who was saying, hey, you know, are you doing the Jesus prayer? Here's how, you know, here's some tips, here's some ways that you can. And we've even talked about you and I, you know, us maybe doing a podcast on prayer, you know, and I think that that could be a really cool thing because I'll be honest, I, I would say that before, before I started down the road of Orthodox, and I was still struggle with prayer, but I really kind of didn't have much of a place for prayer. I didn't, I don't, I didn't really understand it. I still don't understand that, but I didn't really do it is what I'm getting at. I mean, for me, the Jesus prayer is helping me to pray, right? Because I, I, I always think about prayer. It's like, it's too much of a mystery. It's like, well, should I, you know, ask for God to do this thing? And then I have to sort of qualify and say, well, if it's your will and kind of give him a back door in case he doesn't answer. And it's like, for me, like the Jesus prayer really simplifies, you know, prayer to where it's like i'm not really asking mm-hmm. god for anything i'm not i'm not, well except for him to have mercy but you know when you say lord jesus christ son of god have mercy on me the sinner you're just really saying you know have compassion heal me you know help me you know it's not like just forgive me it's a lot more than that but it's a really great way to kind of go to god in prayer without asking for all this random stuff or whatever right like you can do that that's great but well yeah because in the jesus prayer you're contemplating who god is in and through the created relationship of grace, basically. <laughs> so it's just to quiet oneself and be grounded in the God in whom we live and move and breathe. Yeah, because, and, and thank you for helping me to see that, because what I guess what I'm getting at is a lot of times in prayer, it's sort of like you can be, it's like this, we're like this grasping and this grasping, right? And like you're trying to get something that you don't have. Whereas I think that there's another way where you can just sort of enter into what we're calling like contemplative. And, and again, this is all in the, with the backdrop of theosis. Like, what does it mean to be united with God? Well, for me, part of what it means is, is just enter into his presence and to just sort of quietly sit there and, and receive the joy and the sweetness of that and the goodness of that. And that was something that was just like severely lacking in terms of, and that's no one's fault but my own, you know, but um, that's one of the gifts I think that, well, and honestly, it was you that kind of helped me to, because there's a lot of Orthodox who I'm sure don't do the Jesus prayer or whatever, right? Like, I mean, that's just not part of their part of their practice. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, I think you are hitting at the fact you're trying to skirt around saying it just, well, some forms of Christianity don't, really talk about any kind of prayer other than intercessory prayer and most of the christian tradition this is hard for people to get to but you know before the protestant reformation like there's theologians but theologians are people who are seeking union and friendship with god Mm -hmm. they're not people who are trying to write the next academic tome that's going to get them remembered or a better paying job i mean that's just not what a theologian was yeah and so it, it is all about prayer in a very real sense. And as I'm as I'm reading like the fathers, they're the other thing that they're saying is is I don't know exactly how it works, but it's like God will actually show you stuff. You know, I'm not saying they're like visions. I'm saying that you'll grow in your understanding that you're that you're with yeah. Them. So like in just traditional uh, ascetical speak, you'd say you know there are consolations in prayer. And a consolation is when something is revealed to you that, uh, oh, you know, this is something new about, not something new in the sense of maybe, you know, not a new discovery, but you have been brought into proper relation or have 
something has been brought to light to you about God or yourself, yourself in relationship to God through prayer. Yeah. And I mean, and, and just illumination as well. Right. So the, uh, you know, origin, other fathers talk about this. I'm, uh, I'm reading the, the sayings of the desert fathers too. And so they're, what they're saying is, is that, you know, sin actually clouds like it, it you know, it really does it like it clouds your vision, your spiritual vision, right? Like, in other words, like in their language, like the life in the flesh, you know, the life of sort of selfish desire or whatever. It's like that you're, you're, you're sort of clouding yourself out from the divine life. And you're, so you're not really able to see God as clearly as you would if you were sort of walking in the spirit, right? Like more so than you are, right? So in other words, what they're saying is, is that the, the higher you go up the ladder, the more clearly you can see the good, the beautiful, and the true. And therefore, in that ladder is like that ladder of ascent into the divine life, theosis. It's resurrected right? life, right? This is what we've been talking about. When you move from death to life, uh, well, why do we do that? Is it because so I can feel self-satisfied? Is that I know I'm a good person now or that my ethics are straight? Or, well, no, it's so you can contemplate God. Yeah, and that might involve, you know, a lot of the fathers, too, they talk about tears of repentance and how they actually heal us. You know, it's like we're not again, we're not just talking about some happy dappy, you know, flaky, whatever. It's like, no, this is actually, you know, if you contemplate God and you really you can taste of his goodness and sweetness, it might like break your heart. You know what I mean? And it probably should break your heart. All right. And it's like it should yeah. bring you to a place of like where you're truly, you know, the, the Jesus prayer is taken from the guy who's beating his breast and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He's beating his breast. And Jesus says, that's the guy who goes home justified. But so it's not all just like, oh, rainbows and butterflies and illuminations and visions or whatever. It's also revealing to us the depths of our sort of depravity, what we need to be saved from, what we need to relinquish, right? Like the, right. Uh, the... Well, this is the three, you know, this is, so traditionally speaking, the one way that people have talked about the spiritual life is that there are three aspects. So there's the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. And it's not as if they're three stages that don't have anything to do with each other. Like you may uh, experience the purgative for quite some time and then have a long period of, living in the illuminative way before going through more purgation, but uh, with the goal being, of course, the unitive way, which is to be fully united with God. Mm. I mean, isn't that, I mean, this is kind of interesting. I didn't see our conversation going this way, but... Well, this is theosis. Well, that, yeah, but, but, it's, but it's really cool to talk about, it, like, theosis as prayer, right? Or, like, contemplation, because, of course, like, well, what's happening in the Trinitarian life, right? Like, there, there's this infinite depth of communication, Right. Right. And so we're, we're invited into like, so we're invited into that divine life of this infinite depth of communication right now. Now that's going to mean that we're going to need to sort of turn away from evil and do good. You know, we're going to have to discipline ourselves in, in our prayer life. And Jesus, I think, tells us that you need to fast, you know? You're part of it. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff that's that's going on. So, but we're we're doing the thing again. where Paul. We're just like leaving Paul in the dust back there, you know, on his own podcast. So we we I do, and I want to bring him in on this because Paul, you know, how is theosis? And if you could maybe recap, I don't know if you can remember every we've talked about. We've covered so much ground over the past few weeks, but if you can maybe remember uh, how theosis then would be a good conclusion of our entire conversation. Yeah, this is our last conversation before we have Douglas Campbell on, and we're going to ask him some questions. We begin with, who is Jesus, if I remember right? Describing then Jesus Christ and describing that he is both human and divine. 
in talking about theosis, there is this element of unity. I mean, that's what Paul is going to talk about and focus on, the unity of Jew-Gentile, the unity in the church that's no longer divided between slave-free. And so as we achieve the likeness of God, as we put on the image of the Son, I think there's a real-world experience, not simply of a singular vertical unity, but that the unity that we achieve with God is one that we experience with creation and with people around us. And I think it's always uh, necessary to bring that back. And I'm saying this to myself. I think that I've swung between two extremes in my life. That I begin, oddly enough, I begin my Christian journey as a kind of mystic because that's where I found the presence of God was in uh, in nature and in, in that realm. But of course, that's never enough, nor is it ne- ever enough to find union with God simply in an abstract vertical union. That's important. But that then takes on shape in a holistic realization of who Jesus is as the Son of God. Paul, you did a great job with talking about Christ as the God-man, right? Who is Jesus Christ? Like, well, that's a great, that's theosis, right? Like, Jesus is the ultimate vision of what theosis must mean, right? But I like what you were saying, Paul. I mean, maybe you need to, maybe it's telling that that that's how you found God. And I understand what you're saying. It's like, it could be, I'm not just talking about like this relationship of, oh, it's just me and Jesus or whatever. That's, I'm talking about spiritual formation uh, under the sort of a guide of a spiritual father and of the church and of the tradition. All the sacraments. I mean, so the contemplative life Mm -hmm. is grounded within the corporate sacramental life of the church. We've been talking about the resurrection by talking about Jesus and story and how we move from a life that can be characterized as death and sin, moving out of dualistic ways of being and thinking and perceiving the world into this wholeness and this fullness of life in relation to God, which is ultimately theosis which is living into the life of God, which is living into our proper end. And so through theosis caps off this whole project because when we talk about what does it mean to have access mm-hmm. to the resurrection, the resurrected life of Christ, it essentially means to be living and growing in such a way that all things are becoming whole in God and that we would be counted as friends of God. Well, there you go. That was that was awesome right there. <laughs> great, great recap. So we talked about Jesus, God is... God is truth, narrative, death, sin, yeah. life, and now theosis. It's been a great discussion. I mean, we've we have covered a lot of ground, so it's hard to say. Well, how is theosis a yeah. good conclusion of our entire conversation? Because our it's been a vast. We've done everything. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of the. I mean, for me, you know, just in real simple terms, like the whole point of just life, you know, existence is to uh, to love God and to be loved by God and to love other people. It sounds so simple, right? But it's to it's to receive, and it's going to entail suffering. It's going to be hard. We're going to lose people along the way. And I mean, Jesus was crucified, right? Paul was beheaded. All these—that's the thing that really is hard with this whole thing. It's like, well, the people who were the best, they all got killed. The the people who were at best at Theosis were, you know, sawn in half, and 
you know, boiled alive. Kierkegaard has this great phrase that he says, you know, one theory is that the, is that the good always gets the worst. You know, I do have a question for you, Matt, about you intrigued me somewhere along the lines of our conversation. You were talking about rule and, you know, ruling over creation, ruling ourselves. And then you said, but not like the Gentiles. And I was curious on this day of all days, uh, did Constantine rule like the Gentiles? <laughs> oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, he certainly didn't, he certainly didn't rule in the way that our Lord ruled, you know, or like the sons of Vladimir who both died. Yeah. Because they yeah. took Jesus so seriously. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, you know, we all, you know, that's the thing. It's like, we all got our stuff where it's like, ah, why are we doing that? You know? Oh but, no, that's our stuff too. I mean, any, anybody that, that's what my whole problem with the, you know, people who are, oh, that's just Constantinian Christianity. It's like, well, uh, you wouldn't be a Christian except for the fact that you stand within this tradition of Constantinian Christianity. <laughs> Something we all have to deal with, right? It's not, yeah, Paul, you owe your salvation to St. Constantine. Yeah, How about it's not just somebody else's uh, problem. Yeah, I'm the one, one yeah. member here that's not Constantinian. <laughs> I mean, it's good that you're not venerating him, but yeah. uh, like, sorry, <laughs> you don't get to check it out. <laughs> no, I've returned to an original Christianity, a primitive Christianity. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm You've given up stuff like you know the Trinity, pure. Because they didn't. Oh, yeah, primitive Christians the- didn't have any notion of that. Uh, the Bible. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> Yeah, the Bible, you know, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's yeah, Shmemen, he, he said that, well, yeah, don't forget that for, you know, for 300 years, uh, you know, Christians didn't have one day that was set aside as being sacred and the rest were profane. It was like all the days were sacred. It's like, it, so it's like something that we take for granted that much of like, well, Sunday is the, you know, the day that we go do the sacred thing. It's like, well, that even came after Constantine. I think we we yeah. all agree that there was a kind of Constantinian. Yeah. his heart. You know what? What about Constantine? What are we going to say? Because because you're right, John. We all have to deal with that. And so, how do you What's deal that? with that? Yeah, I mean, and it, because it kept happening, like it didn't just. Uh, I mean, because you know, you, in one way, you could think, oh, if it was just Constantine was the problem, then after the fall of the empire, we should have been offered a new start. But that's not the way it. It's just not the way it's ever worked, right? And that's Yoder's point, that, that the worst Constantinians were the reformers. Yeah. There you go. State church. I mean, well, exactly, right? That's the only reason you have a lasting reformation is because Luther was able to hook up with these German princes who protected him. Otherwise, he would have gotten burned at the stake and yeah. we'd gone on our marriage. I mean, life. it is true. That, and the, the whole notion of the Anabaptists uh, at least developed in as a kind of uh, departure from that conjoining with the state. I think everybody likes to forget Munster, right? It's like, no, the Anabaptists started off as a bunch of crazies who thought that they could bring about the apocalypse, and so they tried to create the kingdom of God on earth, and they got slaughtered. And so then they thought, hmm. We would have, uh, the, yeah, we would have all been uh, Catholic. Yeah, I didn't begin there. I said as it developed. Uh, yeah, yeah, but that's what I mean. Yeah. Like it didn't develop against Constantinianism, yeah. unless you're talking about their own. <laughs> I mean, it's like they didn't. It, it doesn't develop as let's be different than the Lutherans in the sense that we don't want a state church. It began as 
we're going to have the kingdom of God on earth. And when that didn't work, how did they relate to themselves? So they're relating to their own problems at first. Would be, I think you just have to, the radical reformation's interesting. Like people, what I think we take, or the happy picture of Anabaptism is a lot later than what their lineage is with the radical reformation taking off as being iconoclastic and sort of like a fully realized eschaton. And um, I don't know, just, it's an interesting, it's more, uh, what's math yeah. word complicated? It's complicated. I think people have <laughs> held up the Anabaptists and been like, Oh, here's these people who you read the Bible and they got this whole thing about power. Right. But that's not true. It's like, that's not historically how they came to those positions. It wasn't necessarily because they had profound Christian notions of these concepts. That takes a long time to develop because they're coming up with some very bad ideas. But I suppose, could we agree that they came up with some very good ideas in regard to the relationship that Christians should have to the state? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you're not Amish. Why aren't you Amish? I count myself Anabaptist, and, and I see the, the tradition of which I've been a part rightly understood uh, as Anabaptist. So I'm not Amish, but I think I would trace my theology then to that, tradi that theological tradition. But I, I, historically, of course, you can't trace the uh, Christian church to the Anabaptist. But yeah, no, I would I would say that in my understanding of a Constantinian notion, that I am that, that theologically I would count myself Anabaptist. I mean, who are you reading? Like, which Anabaptist are you saying you agree with? Yoder and like Harawas's take on things? Because I get that. Like, that's good stuff. I think so. Yeah, when I say Anabaptist, I'm counting the Christian Church theologically rightly understood the theology rightly understood is Anabaptist. Oh, like that's ridiculous. That's like me saying Anglicans are really Eastern Orthodox because we've got, we're basically an autocephalist Eastern Orthodox church because we've got all these similarities. <laughs> so I'm Eastern Orthodox. No, that's not me. That's uh, that's actually uh, James McClendon when he describes then the Christian church, he he puts the Christian church or the uh he puts them in the Anabaptists. But that's only you. You're the only person in that. Well, I think that's the, the thing is that when he uses the term small b Baptist, that he means by that flowing out of not necessarily identified with any particular Anabaptist group, but flowing out of that theological understanding. And so certainly I'm not a big b Baptist, but a small b Baptist. <laughs> oh, okay. But that's what I think is funny is that like, I, it's, I, I know that Paul's being genuine, and, 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 he, and I understand what you're saying about, you know, properly understood and theologically and stuff like that. But my thing that's funny is is that, yeah, but you're like the only person in the Christian church who thinks that that's true. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> like, it's like you and a couple other people who would say that. So, that's not true. You know, these other people are nationalists, uh, violent, you know, they're yeah. all, and, you know. That's what I'm saying. It's like, well, the Christian church is like completely strayed from whatever they were back then. It's like now they're just one. In other words, I feel like that as a Christian, that we can all make progress and that I do not need to tie my understanding. In other words, I'm quite happy to 
develop an understanding out of Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm quite happy to partake of the best of all of Christian development and theology. And I count nonviolence as a key part, that is the development of a full-blown, I do see as a return to a key part of the Christian teaching that has been lost in a large portion of the major traditions. And so if I demanded that I find some group around that would practice the Christianity that I am calling, you know, that I, th- I think is the best of uh, a theological understanding, then I'm afraid we would all be tied to cultural norms and a kind of de-evolution of faith. Because of our teaching on baptism, the teaching on baptism, the teaching on nonviolence, but also the independent churches, that he counted uh, Christian churches, and so that I was just saying, repeating what he said, that, that it flows theologically. But no, I don't identify with any of those. Yeah, no, I didn't. I wasn't saying that I'm uh, a part of the Mennonites or the Amish, or. But if I had to locate myself theologically, I would locate myself in that part of nonviolence or pacifism. I think that that is flowing out of an Anabaptist understanding. Well, Paul, isn't uh, isn't the Christian Church an institution? Uh, yeah, there, there certainly are those churches that have become institutional. It's an interesting thing that's happening in the Christian church because there's like this sort of interplay between floating free of being an institution and that being a good thing. But then there is sort of like the, well, here's what the Christian church is. Here's our practices for the most part. You know, here's what we do. Here's how we believe. You know, here's how we baptize people, whatever, even though we're independent of one another. And so it's just interesting for because it's almost like, You have an aversion to that sort of institutional Christianity. You don't really want to join sort of a tradition, I don't think, right? Like Like you want to say, okay, let me draw from all these different sort of, like you said, Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, whatever, Anabaptist, and say it's simply Christian. And I don't know if John's question is, can you really do that without, I mean, obviously you can because you're doing it, but without joining yourself to a particular tradition. But you're saying that that's what you're doing in the Christian church, right? But it's just that sort of um, heterogeneous or whatever. It's like that fluid. Like you can just believe whatever you sort of you want. <laughs> no, I, I think there is a real respect for a tradition. In other words, I think there is a, a grounding in a, a, a tradition. So no, it's, uh, uh, it's not a rejection of that. There is that element in... Christian churches that that has been prone to do that, and maybe even in Protestantism. But no, no, it's not a running down of the tradition. What McClendon is doing is laying out then this position of what he's calling a little B Baptist, inclusive of several groups. I mean, his own position is is that he's come up through the Southern Baptists and certainly doesn't end there, you know. you know, in a practical sense, we all are, are given a certain practical circumstance in life. And I think that we have to admit that feeds into what all of our decisions are. We find fellowship. We find the church where we are. You know, we can always long for something different, I guess. 
But in the end, we've been given a community of believers that we can fellowship with. You know, that's just where we find ourselves. This is where I found myself. I mean, I don't know that anybody's more aware of <laughs> problems. The movement has been captured. You know, this in, in a way, it's kind of who I am and where I find myself. I guess I really struggle with this idea of like, oh, well, here's some similarities. Let me construct this identity idealistically, and it doesn't actually have anything to do with anything you can find in history or the real world. I'm in the real world, and I, there are real people that come and meet in my real house, and they're all flesh and blood types. Where I find myself is one that I'm s surrounded by believers who are like-minded, and we are a small group the, of and fellowship. I count you guys part of this fellowship. And so I, I don't feel the great necessity to attach myself differently than I've been placed. Paul, you do realize that you have like, I mean, you're, I'm hoping that you have like a good 35 years left, right? So you keep like writing yourself off like you're already putting the robe on and shuffling your feet with your slippers over the window and like writing your, writing your eulogy and all this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.